Welcome to Afterthought, a podcast series that puts our present moment into perspective and invites you to think through our world in crisis together. I'm Dawson. I'm Karambir. And I'm Chris. You're listening to Afterthought. In this episode, we'll talk about Axial Age. Well, we will explore the We'll explore the critique of power by XLH visionaries, as well as the spiritual revolution that they started and its implication for our contemporary times. Welcome back to Afterthought. Now, in the last few episodes, we've really taken a dive into what the meaning of myth is and how these mythologies sort of construct our lives and relate to modern powers and we've talked about that in discussion with the modern worldview now one of the big questions that seems to come up with that is we're talking about these different worldviews and well how do they interact with empirical reality how do they interact with history uh, we've been taking several different historical lenses throughout the podcast series. We've looked at World War II as a precedent. Now, one of the other precedents that uh, you use in your book, Chris, is you, you mentioned the Axial Age. And you actually mentioned it last, uh, last episode as something that really seems to change the meaning of, of myth for, uh, well, for the human race. Um, and so I want to go back to that. And uh, some people have talked about the Axial Age as sort of the beginning of history, where, where civilizations really seem to take off. And I, I wonder, like, if we're contrasting history and the empirical uh, on one hand with the mythical and these meaning structures on the other, well, what does, what does the Axial Age do for myth? You mentioned it last episode as the universalization of myth. Um, and so let's pick up on that. Yeah, excellent question, not least because I just did a book on the actual age, which I've been researching for a long time. So uh, I'm pretty excited to jump into that. And there's a lot of complex characterizations to try to really nail down what the actual age is or what it accomplishes. A lot of scholarly argument about it and, and disagreement. Um, in so uh, instead of getting lost in, into all of the immediate details, first we should get get a bit of a general sense of what the actual age is. Um, Karl Jaspers, who's a German philosopher, is the person who coins that phrase, although the idea and the scholarship about the actual age had been around for some centuries even before then. He does it after World War II, and so he's re very much responding to World War II as a, a, a global historical crisis, and we need to gain perspective on it. And, and, and when you hear that, you say, oh, it's a lot like this, what this podcast series is. So in that sense, we are following, in a sense, in Jasper's footsteps, with the big difference being that uh, global climate change, and, and in fact, a convergence of multiple crises as characteristic of our time, is arguably much more pronounced than it was like immediately after World War II in Jasper's time. But what he means... Um, and the word axial, which is A-X-I-A-L, it comes from the word axis. It just comes from the very basic image of a dividing line. So, you know, you write before, you see this in pictures, right? You know, a before and an after, your, your dieting plan or whatever it is, your acne um, treatment, right? And, and there's a line between the two pictures. So, very simple, what, what Jasper says is there's a before, 
then there's an axis, a dividing line, and then there's an after. And the world changes as it goes through that dividing line. And when you, and now we're going, we're sitting really far back to make it look like a line. But when you zoom in close and get into it, well, well this dividing line in history is about six centuries for Jaspers. Uh, he, he dates it from 800 to 200 BC. So, in terms of human lives, and remember what we did with the coronavirus versus the Great Acceleration versus modern Western, it's, it's like the Russian dolls where we're changing scales. So, so the actual age is another um, scale we can introduce here, it being about 2,500 years ago. And for those who lived through it, I mean, it's 600 years, like there were, there were many, many generations of human beings who now we could say, well, they all belong to the same time and it's just this thin line in historical time or even thinner in evolutionary time. The Holocene, the Anthropocene, which we've mentioned earlier as sort of geological evolutionary time periods, well, they're divided by a line too. Um, but the, the key piece here is that what is, what is characteristic about our times, our present moment, is, is these crises, we're in a type of transition, turning points, tipping points, all of these paradigm shifts. There's all sorts of these phrases and metaphors and images that have been flying around for decades now. I think all of them are true. And one way to simplify all of them is we are living in a major transition time. It is not a time of, of stable, enduring meaning with everyone agreeing. You could argue the modern Western period uh, was like that to an extent. Now, within it, there's lots of turbulence and issues, but, but take enough steps back. And there were certain points of agreement that are shared over a few centuries, and it comes to an end with World War II. A transition time is not like that. It is like climate change. The climate is just enormously volatile and variable and unstable. And it's really hard to make generalizations or global claims, except at the most abstract level. Well, that is a characteristic of a, of a transition time, of a dividing line within history. And in one of the, the claims about the actual ages, it's also a dividing line in terms of evolution. So... In the middle of the first millennium BC, Jaspers, and he's not the only one, um, a number of scholars discerned there is a major transformation within the, the, the great civilizations of the old world. So China, India, Greece, um, Palestine or Israel. In those centuries, there, there is a qualitative transformation in how they experience myth and religion. And it's not that they get rid of myth, although there are some people here and there within the actual age, um, these radical intellectuals or visionaries or holy men or sages or they're prophets, they're given all these different names, but, but loosely speaking, they all belong to the same actual age family. There are some of those who do deny myth, who do say all of the stuff we believe in up to now, all of this religious stuff and ritual is just all made up and it's not real. And that's very radical. Now, there are others who also challenge the myths, but not in order to do away with them, but in order to purify them. Or, or if you like, and to bring in other imagery reviews from past episodes, it's like myth was operating at a certain sort of ceiling. And with the actual age, they push and break through that ceiling. And in fact, the most common term used by scholars is breakthrough. What is the actual age? It's sort of a breakthrough in consciousness is often how it's described. Um, 
there was a breakthrough in this sort of mythical ceiling up till then. For example, myth was understood to belong to and be about the, the region you lived in, your own people, your own area, your own king, your own way of life. And, and the idea that it would apply to other peoples was just not really thought about. With the actual age, that ceiling is broken through, and suddenly the notion is that, well, the, this myth that I'm articulating here, this truth I believe in, is in fact universally true. And anyone who hears and learns about this myth should believe in it and should be able to understand it, and it applies to them too. So that's one of the big changes that the actual age brings about. And if you remember, I corrected Karambir, who spoke in a very actual way by saying, well, when you have a myth, like every, everyone should believe in it. It's a, well, prior to the actual age, that wasn't really the claim. Um, a different distinction made is, is one between myth, which characterizes pre-actual thinking, and then rationality, which characterizes actual thinking. Or another one is myth, which characterizes pre-actual thinking, and then history, which characterizes, as in one of the things that happens during the axial age is human power of civilization takes an enormous leap forward. And, and in the case of my book, that is the, the main reason it is the precedent for our times. What we are seeing right now with the Great Acceleration is an enormous leap in human power because of technology, because of how civilizations organize themselves, because of how we've got industrialization, etc. Well, during the actual age, there was a, a, a comparable leap. We don't entirely know what caused it. It was a whole bunch of factors that come together. But you see, can see very clearly around 700 BC and before, there was a certain sort of ceiling on the limits of the size of empires. By about 500 BC, empires are way larger. So something between 700 and 500 BC dramatically changes. And it means empires can greatly increase their size. They greatly increase their um, population. They greatly increase the number of cities they have. The cities that they do have are greatly increased in size. The number of slaves they have increases. Money is invented. So barter system ceases to be the only way to do an economy, and suddenly you have a much more sort of abstract money system. Um, the kings go from being kings of or empire emperors to being gods and kings of kings and the one above all, and and so there there is there is some awareness of the breakthrough in the ceiling of, of possibilities at the time because of power. And in that sense, it's a precedent for our time. We don't quite know what to do with the enormous power we have at our disposal. And what climate science is telling us is it's really destructive. When you look at the incredible violence and the potential for violence, right? World War III is not talked about, to my knowledge, by many people as a possibility, but it seems to me very possible on the horizon. I don't want it to happen. It would be even more horrific and destructive than World War II, but... If we get enough of an escalation in violence internationally, it is a possibility, and there's no doubt it would be a terrible, terrible war, right, given the weapons of mass destruction we have and, and all the technologies we have. So, so there is all sorts of potentials for, like, greater violence to, to nature and, and climate change um, to each other in the sense of World War III. Um, 
And of course, you also see the protests against the unjust forms of power we see happening all around us, right? Black Lives Matter is pointing out the, the, the danger of white racism at the heart of American power, right? And, and beyond America. So, so in many ways, the, the concern with great power is a key characteristic of the actual age and of our age. And in that sense, it is a major precedent, right? We could add that precedent in. It's quite different than World War II as a precedent or um, the beginning of the modern West and the scientific revolution as a precedent. But, but it's a, a, another precedent we could add in, which is a, a great precedent um, for our times. So if the axial age takes place at this time of transition when things are quite volatile and empires are expanding, there is increasing amount of power at people's disposal. And the visionaries come along, some of them do away with myths, some of them perhaps transform would be the word, word, word to use. Best word is transform. Yes. So what happens then? What do they... Is there kind of like a dialogue between the two sides, like between the empire and their expansionism and these visionaries? Or So can you give us a bit of a context of uh, what unfolded then? Yeah, well, the visionaries who are um, chosen as above all the representatives of the actual age, as in the visionaries respond to the growth in power, and they perceive it as a crisis. They do not perceive it like the king and those who are close to the king do as this is great because now, you know, Persian power or Chinese power, or Greek power, whatever it is, is now, is now like exponentially greater. Well, what the visionaries do is they, they look at humanity in a much broader, in a universal way. And they say for the great majority of humanity, this increase in power is terrible. It's unjust. It's, there's terrible suffering. There's terrible evil. Right, the creation of money does not make our lives better. It, it creates people now who are slaves in debt rather than just mere physical slaves, and and, and so the, the visionaries, the prophets, the philosophers, the sages, they rail against this increase in power as as risking our humanity, as putting our human spirit in peril, and and we need to spiritualize against that power in order to live truly humane, ethical, moral, good lives. And in making that sort of a claim, you should see also how the actual age could be seen as a precedent for our time. What do we need above all? We need a moral, ethical, spiritual vision or ideology or worldview or mythology to live by that makes sense of our suffering and our power, but also like points to a way to put that power into its place so that we, we can live together and we can live well. And it is, in fact, these articulations by the great visionaries, and to name some of them, um, the philosophers in Greece are, are the famous ones like a Pythagoras or a Socrates or a Plato. They are great axial age visionaries. The Old Testament prophets like an Isaiah or an Ezekiel, or a Jeremiah, are, are great actual age prophets of, of ancient Israel. The Buddha, uh, very famously in India, and whoever the anonymous authors of the Upanishads, um, which are Hindu scriptures, if we want to use a kind of Western way of interpreting them, um, or Mahavira, who's the founder of Jainism. 
um, in India are actually visionaries. Um, and in China, you, ha you have Confucius, who's like the number one guy in China in many ways, but, but also Lao Tzu and Chuang Tzu and, and others. And all of those different named individuals all have great differences if you really start to look at them in great detail. But if you take a couple steps back, and this is that scale thing, right? Right. If you have your face pressed up against a painting, you can talk about the type of paint used and, and the quality of the oil, which is not untrue to it as a painting. But to really understand what the painting is, you got to take a few steps back and sort of see what was being painted because it was meant to be seen from a certain distance, right? And if you go way too far away, you know, it just looks like a little dot, which isn't very helpful, right? So the actual age visionary up close, you'll just see great differences between Confucius and the Buddha and, and an Old Testament prophet. But take a couple of steps back like Carl Jaspers does or like we're doing right now, and you see that, well, what they all have in common these visionaries, is they're revolting against the politics of the time and the religion of the time because the, the, a key thing the mythology of the religions were used to do was to justify the politics, were to justify why the king is a god, that sort of thing. Well, the, the actual age visionaries revolt against that and they say, no, this is a distortion of true religiosity, true spirituality, and, and the king is just another human being. And that the spirit or the god or the gods are in fact higher than we've really understood them to be. And in making that sort of claim that they break through the ceiling of the old myth, the god ceases to be like a powerful guy or woman who lives in a, a cave at the bottom of the ocean or on top of a mountain. And you could actually physically eventually see them through some great journey. They cease to be like that and they become much more mysterious and much more sort of other than, than the old gods of mythology. But in doing that, they also kind of relativize all human beings as even if you're a great king, you're still just a human being compared to the god. And in that sense, you, you, the distance between you and the lowliest slave is quite minor, is, is really negligible. We're all human beings. And so that revolutionary move sort of puts a lot of spiritual power into the gods and makes them high above and that relativizes all of human power as all kind of being of the same sort. They don't deny the king's much more powerful than the slave, but the, the, they deny that that has any real spiritual meaning. And in doing so, they are often considered quite revolutionary relative to the kings of the time. A lot of these visionaries are, are viewed as very suspect or, or weirdos. Or they're put to death as dangerous because it's like you, what you're saying is not really considering me, the king, to be the most powerful thing on earth. You're, you're saying, you know, as the, as the Old Testament prophets are, are famous for doing, you know, you, you're criticizing me. You're just a human criticizing me, except that you're doing it in the name of this higher God power. So the, the visionaries are revolutionary in transforming politics and myth and religion in ways that we're all familiar with today because they go on, Confucianism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, Greek thought or Western thought or European thought or Greek philosophy, which combined with Judaism is key for the emergence of Christianity and Islam, they become the world religions. So they're not unfamiliar to us now, but, but one of the great benefits of the whole actual age thesis is you see where these world religions come from in historical time, and that we are still kind of living within their way of thinking. Right, and, and to make a, 
a tie back to sort of what we've been talking about throughout the last few episodes. It, there's this notion you mentioned it's a, a sort of a universal truth that we're sort of getting at as opposed to a local truth. And you can sort of see this dynamic playing out when you say have climate scientists who say we have access to the truth about the way the way the world is and the way we can make predictions and uh, it using that truth to call out the economic regime of the time very much like these axial visionaries were doing at their time to say no we we have access or we we can see a higher truth than than the power of the regime that we're living in and we can use that truth to hold that regime accountable so it's a very similar thinking and it, it's it's because i mean it's similar because we sort of get like you said these these major world religions these notions of truth our philosophies and and eventually our science from this kind of thinking yeah and, and we shouldn't overlook how radical and revolution because it's become normal for us today or we think it's natural today to have these world we shouldn't forget how radical and revolutionary it was 2500 years ago for them to be articulating that and and i think you're absolutely right the when you make the parallel comparison to let's say this is what science is doing i would say yes and the precedent for science to be able to think and criticize that way was we can date when that begins, it begins in the actual age 2,500 years ago. Now, it doesn't mean it's exactly the same or it's a straightforward repetition. There are some differences to it. But there is, and, and this is maybe the key word in addition to a, you know, the phrase breakthrough to, of consciousness, is transcendence. So the actual age discovers transcendence. As in, there's a power that's higher than earthly powers that transcends it, and that's what we need to orient our spirit to. Is the scientist making the same claim? Not exactly. Certainly all that spiritual stuff doesn't seem to apply. But the laws of nature that they're discovering do sort of transcend human convention, presumably. They're, they don't, they're, they're not imbued with this spiritual sacredness in, in an obvious religious way. But insofar as the scientist claims, like, this is objective truth... There is a kind of secular, if you like, an analogy or analog to the sort of sacredness of, of spiritual truth with a commonality being that there's a universal claim here that transcends regional, local, political differences. That's very fascinating that we can kind of look at these two very distinct timelines, one quite old and the other kind of starting in the... 1500s and kind of draw that parallel between scientific world and the axial age world. But I am curious as to what are the parallels between the the two historical points in terms of their outcome. In the sense that we talked in the previous episodes about the scientific revolution and the kinds of amazing uh, amazing things it kind of brought up in Europe when it started. At the same time how it kind of becomes, to an extent, a self-obsessed system. The way in the West today we kind of look upon science, or maybe we the way we should actually look upon science, depending on which camp you kind of belong to. Right now we are seeing a lot of people with coronavirus either complete denial or... Right? So is there kind of um, a parallel between how 
two systems also don't fully become successful and the two systems also have limitation. I'm thinking that in terms of religion, we have these uh, works of exilage visionaries getting transformed into religious ideologies. And in the scientific world, we see, we see it as transforming into scientificism, as if science can explain the entirety of life, therefore you don't need any other aspect. Yeah, I think the, the parallel you just drew is entirely accurate, and, and the issue is power. And, and the irony here is you have the actual age as a revolt against traditional power, and the kings are too powerful, and I mean... To be anachronistic about it, you could argue it's sort of like an antitrust type of argument. Right? You got too much power, and it's a monopoly, and this is a problem. We need greater diversity, etc. Um, you, you have the the motivation and origins of the Axial Age in that criticism of power and an appeal to a much um, on the one hand, to a much higher power, but it's not exactly human, it's spiritual beyond us. And at the same time, a, a real recognition of the very homely, small, local, like everyone is capable of orienting to this higher power. So the universal is both like higher than, but it's also like just really lowly and ordinary and everyday. And, and in doing that, you kind of skip the importance of of the king and the power and the tradition and the, and the temples and, and the organized religion of the time. And that, which is very much what the actual age was after. With the scientific revolution, you get something similar. It's like, this. you look at the kings and the power of the tradition and the church and all this warfare. And, and, and science is like, we're going to give the thinking individual a, a conception of truth that's quite outside of all of this war and conflict and power. So, so in both cases, there's sort of a purity of spirit or intellect over against the, the entrenched systems of power which have become corrupt. But now, if you let them go for a while, there's a lot of appeal, or a different word than appeal is power. There's a lot of power in what these revolutionary ideas are claiming. And, and as the re revolution gains more and more adherence, well, it stops being a revolution, and in fact, it starts to become the mainstream itself, and, and then power, I would argue, corrupts. It corrupts the actual age visions into being these, these large systems of world religions, which are not all bad, but there's certainly lots of examples, and I don't think we even need to come up with any off the top of our heads, right? Lots of examples of where world religions have gone wrong with their power compared to their founding ideals. I don't know anyone who would say, oh, the history of Christianity is just 2,000 years of people loving their neighbor. Like, we know that that's not the history, right? And, and, and that goes for any world religion, as far as I can tell. Um, so, so how did they go wrong? And it's not like the, the adherents of the religion don't know that. They do know that. It doesn't mean they stop believing, necessarily. But, but what happens is the power, they become powerful, and then they have to deal with the very same issues that they themselves were revolting against. With science, what has happened? Well, in its origins, yeah, it is revolutionary against the power of tradition, and it liberates a lot. And, and then it starts to gain more in power, becomes institutionalized throughout the 1800s in the university system and in research. And, and yes, yeah, suddenly you get this issue now of scientism, where science, which was supposed to only describe objectively the sort of physical world of nature and leave entirely the human spirit and human mind out, 
it has now got to a point where you get this very difficult argument and debate about just what are the limits of science relative to the human spirit and the human mind and, and meaning. It sounds to me like we have a few, uh, we can trace a few different main consequences then from this kind of u universal thinking. And so on the one hand, it allows these these individuals within their particular regimes to speak out against the power systems based on these universal truths that aren't necessarily uh, constrained by their local region. On the other hand, the fact that those truths aren't constrained by their local region has allowed these ideas and these ideologies to spread on a massive scale. And this is where we see these, these uh, modern religions that encompass or ideologies that encompass like the whole globe. Exactly. Exactly. And in, in terms of what it does to human identity, it expands that, and there's a notion of, there's a bit of expansionism here. It expands our identity from being very tribal to a potentially universal one. The danger within that is that and, and, and we know this in different ways, is, is that we will still insert that kind of tribal way of thinking alongside that universal way of thinking, and then it kind of becomes, well, my tribe is the universal one. Which, if you really think that through, the, no, there's a problem with that. The, the, the meaning of universality here ought to be this great diversity of all different human beings and all of their different tribal um, identities, not my tribe has now become so big, it's going to be the one universal one which is going to eliminate or convert all the others. And I, I think the notes of uh, Im imperial instincts or colonial instincts are uh, not incidental here. No, as in the, the negative legacy of the actual age is one of them is the creation of that kind of colonialism and imperialism on a scale that we had never seen before. And there's great irony in that because they were critically responding to the scale of power that they saw as so negative. Right? Um, you could say history has a sense of irony or a sense of humor. Often historians will use phrases like that. So that's a major negative legacy. Um, there are also a number of positive legacies, but for us to really explore those, we'll need a lot more time than we've got left in this episode. <laughs>